I didn't really, I mean, I'd seen the Good Tidings name on, you know, a few different courts around and, you know, thought, well, that's cool. I wonder what they do. And, you know, the courts are nice and, wow, this is awesome. And I had no idea, I don't think, the depth of your organization, the things that you do. And so it wasn't really until you and I started talking that, I, you know, I think we, the light bulb went on for both of us. Like, how can we work together? Like, how can we, you know, with my role at the University of San Francisco or, you know, connections with the NBA and, and obviously you're so well connected in the NBA, you know, just continue to do good in the world. Welcome to the Good Tidings Podcast, where we highlight and inspire a community of givers with your host, the founder of the Good Tidings Foundation, Larry Harper. Well, we'll start off with hello, Jennifer. We're so happy to, to be here sitting with you today. And this episode, you know, I do have the pleasure of chatting with my friend Jennifer Azey, who is a basketball Hall of Famer, Olympic gold medalist, NCAA champion, and certainly dozens and dozens more accolades on her resume. We should tell everyone that we are recording this in January of 2021, <laughs> hopefully on the downside of a pandemic, but we are sitting socially distanced in here in your home in Mill Valley, California, where you live with your wonderful wife and Two beautiful children. So with all of that, welcome to the Good Tidings Podcast. Well, thank you. And welcome and thanks for being here. Well, there's so many questions I want to kind of dive into, but I do want to just start back where it all began for you growing up in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. What was life like in the 70s in Oak Ridge, Tennessee? Life was a dream. Life was amazing. No cell phones, no, you know, no computers. You know, it was just a real simple childhood. And, you know, I think that's why I got into sports because it was really all the kids did. You know, we played sports, we played tag outside, we climbed trees. You know, it was just a very wonderful, pure sort of place to grow up and, and a great era, I think, to grow up. Well, that's interesting. And, and what were the opportunities for young girls and sports. Well, I was fortunate because Pat Summit had started to build the program at the University of Tennessee. So girls basketball was actually really big. So I never played with, I mean, I played with boys on the playground, but never had to be like the girl on the boys team because we had really strong girls programs. And so I'm, I'm definitely grateful for that. And basketball was the most popular sport, you know, by far, I think, you know, for girls anyway. So it was good. Were you one sport person in high school or? No, uh, well, no, I was two sport in high school, but all growing up multi-sport. I mean, and parents ask me now when kids come to our academy camps and when should my kid, you know, focus on one sport? I'm like, at the last minute, because your body is better if you can, you know, sort of cross train. And that's what playing multiple sports does. So I, I played softball. I was in gymnastics, ran track, you know, just you name it. And both my sister and I were exposed to tons of sports. But when I got to high school, I started to narrow down, so I did basketball and track. And I think anybody, any sport should run track because <laughs> it teaches you so much discipline. Yeah, for sure. So so then you mentioned Pat Summit and being in her home state, but yet you came all the way out here to Stanford. How was that decision made, and was that a little bit of a culture shock coming to Palo Alto from Oak Ridge? 
It was a culture shock. <laughs> I, I would imagine today it's even more of a culture shock with, you know, the whole high-tech boom. But as I mentioned, I grew up right, you know, down the street from Pat Summit building the program at the University of Tennessee and, you know, had her in that program, the players as role models and, you know, everything. And But I was sort of their second choice as a point guard the year that I came out of high school. So they they recruited me, but it wasn't like, hey, you know, you're it. And I started getting recruited by a lot of other schools. And I actually didn't even know where Stanford was. So I remember I got a letter from Stanford and my dad was like, you got a letter from Stanford? And I said, well, yeah, okay, well, whatever. They're not good at basketball. Like, I'm not even going to look at it. And he said, oh, let's just, you know, let's just take a look. Well, Tara had just been hired at Stanford from Ohio State. Ohio State had been recruiting me. So then we got familiar with her, the program that she had built there. And, you know, the more I learned about it, the more I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a risk taker. I'm a builder. And it just fit, it, it, and it made sense. And it's what my parents wanted. You know, let's face it, when you're a kid, you want to do right by your, your parents, and they would never steer me wrong. So they were looking at, you know, my dad, I remember, was ahead of his time. He said, Jennifer, if you go to Stanford, it's not just your degree, it's the networking, and you're going to be set for your life. And it's true. I mean, coming out here, not just the Stanford piece, but like I met you, I've met amazing people because I've had this experience. Yeah. So at Stanford, you win a national championship. You have the opportunity to play on the 1996 Olympic team in Atlanta where you won a gold medal. How were those two experiences? They were similar in a way. With both teams, we were on a mission to do something great. You know, not just win, but I think have a real impact on, you know, the game of basketball and on women's sports. And I was fortunate because the three-point line came to the women's game. It had already been in the men's game, but between my freshman and sophomore year— and so Tara said, hey, you know, three's worth more than two. Let's shoot threes. Well, none of us could shoot that far. So we worked all summer and, you know, we were able to shoot the three. And my senior year, we won the national championship because we could shoot threes. We could extend the floor. And so we were a team that was, you know, very hard to guard. I think UConn just broke our record a few years ago. So it lasted for quite a while. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. And, you know, that team, too, we were proving that you could win a blue-collar sport at Stanford, and people said that wasn't possible. So that was kind of a chip on our shoulder. And to put Stanford on the map, to bring something from nothing to now what it is today, 30-something years later, Olympic experience was similar in the sense that no one here in the United States had really seen the next level of women's basketball. People here thought, you graduate from college, you know, you're old, you're done. And, you know, so to see one of my teammates, I think she was one of the older ones on our team, Teresa Edwards in her, you know, early 30s, just dominate, you know. So it was it was exciting just to, you know, and then we became the springboard for the WNBA. The NBA actually paid all of us to stay home the year prior to Atlanta, the 96 games, so that we'd win a gold medal. The team in 92 won a bronze. So they figured, hey, if we if we really back this, we see that the NBA wants to own basketball, right? It doesn't matter at what level. And so they invested in us, and then WNBA came a year later. Interesting. And I know that that was a big deal, but you actually, prior to joining the WNBA, actually were part of founding your own women's league. How did that come to be? Well, this is a little bit of a history. So Joe Lacob, obviously the Warriors owner, invested his first basketball investment was in the ABL. And so he was one of the major founders, funders of that league. And, you know, I remember asking him why why he did it, you know, and he said because he wanted girls and women to have an opportunity and he really wanted to own a sports franchise. And so, you know, that experience I think was good for him and I think gave him some experience in it to then, you know, here years later end up buying the Warriors and creating one of the most successful organizations 
in my mind, in the league. Before we kind of jump forward to what we really want to dive into, of all the stuff you've done in basketball in your life, what was the most fulfilling accomplishment of all of, of your accolades? Seeing my son hit like 10 <laughs> shots in a row at the age of two and a half. No, it's just, I don't know that I could say like one thing. I mean, I think it's just, it's the relationships that, you know, that I had through the course of playing for so many years. And, and then even now, you know, if I meet people that are in the game or that have come across, you just have this sort of automatic connection. The basketball world tends to be pretty small, especially at the elite level. And so I think that's what I cherish the most. I mean, I've always felt like it's a great sport to bring people together from all cultures. I think it's it's a great unifier. And, you know, so there's just been so many positive things. Yeah. So we first met at a basketball court dedication where you got a chance to see firsthand what the Good Tidings Foundation does in the community. What were your first impressions of that when we first met? Well, I didn't real. I mean, I'd seen the Good Tidings name on, you know, a few different courts around and, you know, thought, well, that's cool. I wonder what they do. And, you know, the courts are nice and, wow, this is awesome. And I had no idea, I don't think, the depth of your organization, the things that you do. And so it wasn't really until you and I started talking, the light bulb went on for both of us. Like, how can we work together? Like, how can we, you know, with my role at the University of San Francisco or, you know, connections with the NBA, and, and obviously you're so well connected in the NBA, just continue to do good in the world. Yeah. You mentioned USF and you hold many jobs, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hold one main job, but but we first worked together on an idea you had, and I've always had this idea that I thought it's extremely important that a university has the same responsibility to a community and its neighbors as does a professional sports franchise. So as vice president at USF, tell us about that thought process on how the, you know, a university could delve out into its community. It is. It's the same thing as a sports franchise. I mean, you're you you have an anchor in the community. You are a light for your community, and so I think it's important that you help at least the surrounding areas, if not the entire area around your university. And you know, and at the end of the day, it helps with every university needs to do development work. Every university needs to you know to fundraise, and I think some of that should go back into the community because it's all, you know, it's all related. And we want to affect kids' lives in a way, you know, through the McCarthy Center at the University of San Francisco. You know, there's a program called Engage San Francisco, which is in the Western Edition. But in, in addition to all that, the project that you and I were able to work on in Marin City is a good example of an outreach that I think we can have. We've been in COVID, so we haven't been able to use it in ways that we would want to. But, you know, having that gym renovation, it's absolutely beautiful. And now we can bring over students from USF to come over and tutor kids. And I think there's a lot of ways that universities can invest, not just in capital projects, but in their communities. Yeah. In, in 27 years of being with the Good Tidings Foundation, one of the most interesting experiences was when you brokered a walk through the neighborhood with president of USF, Father Paul, yourself, myself, some people from the McCarthy Center. And we literally on foot, walked the neighborhood and just looked at places of need. I thought that was so unique and fulfilling way to really get a grasp of the neighborhood. Absolutely. And, you know, the Western Edition, quite honestly, I think for a lot of people that don't know it in San Francisco, you know it as, okay, it's the Western Edition and you just drive by it, you know, but to really get into it and understand the culture and understand the history, it really matters. And I think we need to do our best to preserve 
that history and, and to make sure that we, as best we can, maintain a diverse population. Yeah, and so we landed at this school called Rosa Parks. It's an elementary school in the neighborhood. And hats off to them as a public school. They saw the value. We hear a lot about STEM research and STEM opportunities for kids, which is science, technology, engineering, and math. But I liked adding the A and making it the STEAM room. Mm -hmm. I agree. Because I think adding the art piece really brings the creativity. And they saw the value, and they had started something there. And then we were able to go in and really make it a special spot. Well, and that's where I think I had known you and Good Tidings for your brilliance court work, you know, but to see to see your work in a classroom environment and, you know, add the arts piece was really, I mean, great. And, you know, I think what I was so impressed in working with you isn't just the end result. It's everything is on time. <laughs> everything is everything is very organized, basically down to the last screw or, you know, and so I think most people that work with you and work with your organization appreciate that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. If they're short on hands, you're going to make sure everything gets done. And I think that's awesome. And people should know that San Francisco Unified, the elementary schools are going back to school for in-person learning in about two or three weeks. So we have now since then delivered some more supplies for that steam room at um, Rosa Parks. And it's just... Yeah, it's just a great springboard for kids to just to try to develop, you know, some of the core curriculum, but adding a creativity to it, which I think is key. Well, and one thing, too, about Rosa Parks, I think that is a little bit ironic, is that's Mayor Breed's elementary school. So, you know, just thinking about the, obviously, the potential that's in the neighborhood. And so I think to continue to give some, you know, resources, the ability for those kids to to dream about, you know, becoming anything, I think is really exciting. Yeah. And now through your work as a commentator on Warriors Broadcast, and you said you, you're very well connected with the front office, you leverage that position to encourage the Warriors to finally come to the North Bay. You know, we have built almost 100 basketball courts, believe it or not, in 27 years with the Warriors. Yeah, wow. Which is just Amazing. unprecedented yeah, it is. <laughs> in the country. But we've never come to the North Bay because it was always deemed, well, it's probably not it. of, of need. Yeah. So, Tell us about Marin City and how they lack resources, basically because people's assumption of what the name means. So it's interesting with Marin City, and I think the misinformation that's out there or the, you know, perceptions that just aren't accurate. You know, I've asked people here in Mill Valley that have never even been to Marin City unless they were going to Target, you know, what do they think? And they just say, oh, it's just, you know, black and low income. And it's like, we're in 2020. I mean, that's, you know, at the time. And so I was fortunate through basketball to connect with Paul Austin, whose foundation is Play Marin. So he started sports programs for youth in Marin City and is doing an amazing job. So we connected, you know, through basketball. My wife Blair and I had a, a camp over there. Some of the kids came here. So we're trying to get the kids to understand each other, you know, from, from essentially two different worlds. And so that really brought us together. And so just being in the gym, the gym hadn't been touched in like 40 years. And so thinking of all this wonderful work that Paul is doing, you know, that he needed some help getting the gym up to speed. So, of course, then I thought, hmm, Larry Harper, he's the one to go to. So connected with you. And then, you know, you obviously have great relationships with the Warriors as well. So I think between the two of us to be able to work with Evan from the Warriors and to make something really special in a community that I think in some ways is either misunderstood or has been forgotten about. And so 
I think this is a great way to shine the light on an incredible community. I mean, they are very much a community, which is is exciting because there aren't a lot of places like that. And so I think the gym and the community center is a real hub. So to be able to get that done, and it's a shame, you know, there's been no no big ribbon cutting or, you know, unveiling because the kids haven't really been able to use it. Yeah, and what I tell people now, because when we started building basketball courts back in the 90s, it was all about outdoor hoops, you know, and, and refurbishing these legendary playgrounds that mm-hmm. people grew up playing on, these NBA players like Mosswood Park in Oakland and these others. But now my preference totally is to refurbish a gym because it's more than basketball. It is. You know, it's a basketball gym, but it's the gathering place. Not only can you play many other sports in it, but it is the gathering place for a community. Mm-hmm. And especially there. I mean, they have, you know, wedding receptions and graduations and, you know, just it is it is the hub of, of their community. So I think to have something, a space that feels really good is very important. And I think for kids too, a place that they can really respect and then they, you know, they walk in and they see it and, and, and whether they realize it or not, it says people believe in you, you know, that people believe in your future. And Paul and I have talked a number of times, like, you know, we, we want the kids there just like the kids here and other communities to say, I want to be a doctor. I can do it. I want to be the next London breed. I can do it. I want to, and not just sports. I mean, I think Paul and I both understand the power of sports, but it's it's a vehicle to get you, you know, to another place. Yeah, and I think what was important too about that 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 I liked, it wasn't just the gym. We also did the little learning center room and refurbished that because the two go hand in hand. Absolutely. Like you said. Yeah. Well, and I think it's great too that the focus because I think it had been a game room, so I think to really now focus it as an academic space so that the kids can grow up and understand the balance between sports and academics. And that academics don't stop. I mean, you go to school and you come home, but, you know, you can have tutoring and you can have help if you need it. Or you can just have a quiet place that you can come and learn and study. Yeah. So you are such a skilled teacher of the game and and you went on to be a college head coach at USF also. But you actually held the first ever basketball clinic at the White House with then President Obama. How did that come to be? That sounds sounds cool. I was forgot about that. That does sound cool. So it was in his first year, and it was through uh, the NBA. I was actually at that time a spokesperson for NBA Cares. So we did programs and projects all over the place. And so this was incredible. I remember we were out on the White House court that he actually, because he's a basketball guy, had been a tennis court turned into a basketball court. And, you know, the the balls are, I actually have a picture of it somewhere, but it's, you know, sort of branded on the leather ball, Barack Obama. And so I held the ball and I was like, this is just so cool. And I had the opportunity to meet him, which was amazing. So after the clinic, we went into the White House and he honored the WNBA championship team. I think at that point were, I think it was Phoenix. And as he's doing that, he talks about his daughters and how he wants, you know, his daughters to be able to dream and and be able to accomplish anything just like you know, boys or anyone else. And these women are great role models. And it was just, it was such an incredible experience to be there and to, you know, to really witness his beginning. And I know you continue to work with the NBA on community projects to bring exposure to the game all over the world, especially for women. Tell us about some of that work. Yeah, I um, have a kind of dual roles, I guess, with junior NBA and with NBA International. 
but it's sort of with the same, you know, the same light, the same message. And, you know, and that is to help girls and women around the world either come to the NCAA if that's, you know, something that they want to get an education, because at the end of the day, that's the most valuable thing. But just to show them what's possible and to be able to teach the game, you know, we've been to India a few times and, you know, Blair Hardick, my wife, was able to help two of the kids get scholarship, D1 scholarships in the United States. And that's not just for them. That's culture changing, right? It's You're changing an entire culture with them now being role models. And now they talk to the younger girls. And the NBA also has opened up basketball schools in India. So then it trickles down, you know, to younger girls and boys. But, you know, the boys have more visible role models because they can just, you know, watch the NBA on television. So it's just been great to have that impact around the world that to your point about when you renovate a space, it's not just about basketball. It's about everything else that it brings. When I was doing my research and I, I saw this different community work you do between the Warriors and USF and the NBA, and it seems like the theme is you create these great partnerships. It's not just one person or two. It's it's quite the, the village you bring together. <laughs> is that by design? You know, it isn't in a sense. There's some part of it that's just natural. And it's. I feel like you're that type of person, too. You just... You meet people, and I, I like to be around achievers. I like to be around people that not just want to achieve, but also want to do good in the world. And I think you start to tap into that network of people. And then, you know, you get to know the Steph Currys of the world and the Steve Kerrs and the Rick Welts. And, and then you realize you all, you share a common bond. And so as things come up and you think, wow, maybe Steph would be great to do this. Like Steph came and did a a wonderful event for us at USF on Juneteenth. So he did a talk with Clarence Jones, who's Martin Luther King's speechwriter, one of his closest advisors, his attorney. His institute is at the University of San Francisco. So that seemed like a natural connection, you know, and then Clarence and I went over and met with the Warriors. He talked to their team last year. And, you know, it's just, you just kind of see where people can help each other. And it's it's pretty powerful. And where do you stand on athletes who are public figures and supported by the fans, do they have a responsibility in their communities to give back? They have a 100% responsibility to give back. I think if the public has made you who you are and what you are, you have even more on your shoulders, I think, to give back. And, you know, I think also they have, I, I wouldn't say a responsibility, but I think the athlete voices have become more and more important for social change. You know, you look at what happened in Georgia with the changing of the Senate. You know, that was a lot started by the WNBA players, you know, and trying to kind of expose Kelly Loeffler and her vision and her values and you know, everything that she's about. So I think for the most part, athletes' voices have been used for the good. And if that's the case, then I think it's it's one of the best, social media has become one of the best platforms that I think we've seen. And what is on your philanthropy bucket list at this point in your life? Like what are, what are the, some of the work you want to see done and you want to be a part of? Well, one project that's happening right now is we are fundraising for a pavilion at the University of San Francisco that teams can practice in, but it's not just, again, about sports. It's to alleviate using just our main arena so that that can be freed up to then bring in other community partners, events. The Silk Series at the university has been wildly successful. So to be able to do more events that shine the light on a great university. And so being a part of something like this is is really satisfying. And then also along with this project is a Hall of Fame. The Silk family has 
given to the Silk Family Unity Hall. So it's it's going to be a combination of sports and honoring the past at USF, but then also a much more broad social justice legacy. You know, just looking at things, events and poignant things that have happened around the country over the years. It, it's going to be a real mesh of social justice and sports. And I think it's going to be awesome. Yeah. And you mentioned social justice. And I know this past year was a hopefully an awakening for many people. And, and you got engaged with that also, I know. Well, you know, again, with my friend Paul in Marin City, when after George Floyd's death and there were all the protests and we were going over to Marin City to march and, you know, in the march and show support for the community. And just the, like, I think it was a few hours before the event, you know, the sheriff had sent something out like, don't go, there's going to be looting, right? Like, like it was going to be. And I remember actually second guessing, like, uh, we're bringing our three-year-old son, like, and then Blair and I were like, no way, we're going. Like, this is a ploy to get people to not go. And we went, and it was it was unbelievable. And one of the things that Clarence Jones talks about is, he said this to me on multiple occasions, he said, you know, the best thing that I saw in these, you know, marches around the country is that the majority was white. And that when you have the majority, whatever the majority is, in support, then you know you're making progress. Yeah, so I thought that was I thought that was pretty powerful. And, you know, I think it was a, a good exposure for Marin City, I think, for, you know, to get people to come in that really aren't typically, you know, going into the community to really then come and lend their support to, you know, to our, you know, our neighbors, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, you know, for many things. One, for introducing yourself at that basketball court dedication <laughs> many years ago. I know we have a lot of work that we can work on together. I also wrote a novel called Before Jackie, which was about social justice well before, you know, the issues of this past year. And, you know, in looking for the the right endorser of the book, who for me was Billie Jean King, and I had no opportunity to ever reach out to her. And you made that endorsement happen. So I want to thank you for that, for sure. Well, well worth it. And not that difficult. I mean, she, you know, there was no selling there whatsoever. So, and she's such a great person. I mean, anything that is going to do good in the world. And, you know, I so appreciate people too, like her, you know, that did this stuff when it wasn't cool. You know, now there's kind of a cool factor with being involved in this movement because to Clarence's point, it's now the majority. So it's now accepted. It's now, you're almost supposed to, right? Right. Yeah. Well, thank you for today. It was great hanging out here Same. with you and your dog on this beautiful deck here in Mill Valley. And I wish you and your family well and look forward to working with you in the future. Likewise. Thank you for all your great work. I appreciate it too. You have just enjoyed an episode of the Good Tidings Podcast, highlighting the goodness in people. To learn more about and to support the Good Tidings Foundation, log on to goodtidings.org. This monthly program is brought to you by the generosity of responseresponsibility.org. Don't miss out on the Good Tidings podcast by reviewing and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.